It's episode 118 of Leading Ladies of Corpus Christi, and I'm sitting in a Zoom meeting with Carol Scott, and her list of accomplishments is just incredible. She's up for re-election for the Del Mar College Regent at Large. She's held that position for six years. She's also a public relations consultant. She is the board chairwoman of the Community College Association of Texas Trustees. And she's an advocate for higher education in the Coastal Bend. Thank you so much for being here. Of course. I'm so happy to be here, Brittany. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm like, I barely scratched the surface of what you've done. I mean, you're, the list of accomplishments, I just can't get over it. I'm like, this is, this is a mouthful, but it's so absolutely impressive. And so it's all kind of focused in the education area. And so would you say that you've always had an affinity for that particular part of the community? So in the last decade or so, yes, absolutely. Um, uh, Now, part of it is, Brittany, when you get to be 60 years old, then you have lived a life and you've had a long career, so you've gotten to do a lot of things. So so, so the first thing in in life is just live a long time and keep on doing stuff that that you're passionate about. That would be the the, the first thing to, to get a resume like mine. But in the past decade or so, last maybe 15 years, yes, it has been all around education. Uh, first in public ed. Uh, I served for eight years on the Corpus Christi ISD uh, Board of uh, Trustees and, um, and served a couple of years as president of that board and then was elected to the Del Mar Board six years ago. Mm-hmm. And that work came about having been a PTA mom, having been involved in, in Chris and Alex's uh, you know, school education growing up and, and elementary school and, and middle school. Um, so that's that's really how how it came about. And the way a lot of people start their political careers is, you know, based on a personal experience and wanting to see what can I do to dig in to help? What can I do to change things? Whatever the motivation motivation may be. A lot of it is, is obviously around that personal connection. Right. And that thrills me because it goes to show that you have a close connection with it as you've been a part of the community. So I know you grew up in Bishop, Texas. I did. Bishop Badgers. <laughs> my, my husband's family actually hails from there. So I have a soft spot for anyone from uh, Bishop. And so how did you end up coming into Corpus Christi? So uh, in, in um, my life, I had the, the thought that I would go to a big university. Uh, but, but the reality was my dad was a shift worker at Selenese and my mom a public school teacher. So, so I had to work my way through college. And quite frankly, uh, was going to go to Texas A&I, now Texas A&M Kingsville, for a year and then and then go to UT where a bunch of my high school friends had gone. But I got involved at, at, uh, at the college, uh, got involved in sorority and student government, a number of things, and ended up meeting this cute boy named Mark Scott, uh, <laughs> who we dated <laughs> off and on in college and uh, married uh, in 1984 and moved to Corpus Christi. He was working here at the time. I found a job and the rest, as they say, is history. I love that so much. And so did you go to school for public relations? Because I know that you're actually a certified public relations consultant. That's correct. I did not. They didn't have such a thing at Texas A&I. So I got a business degree in management and wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And in high school and in college, was involved in a lot of organizations and, and did events and those kinds of things. Uh, and so my first job out of college was to work for the Alumni Association for Texas A&I. And I did administrative work, but then also helped with chapter meetings and homecoming and fundraising and, and all of those things that an Alumni Association does and kind of fell into this thing around events. Mm-hmm. and, and uh, Which to me, our- it's not an easy thing to throw an event, to organize an event. There's so much work that goes into that. So people who can do it, I'm amazed by. I, I am not good at it. I, I learned along the way that that was not something that I wanted to do full time. And so I found other aspects of public relations that, that I liked better. Uh, but after Mark and I married, worked, Uh, in a couple of different jobs, uh, both at the the Harbor Playhouse and and worked for American Heart Association for a while and kind of did the fundraising and community building side of of PR. Um, And so that's really kind of how I got my start was was falling into this this profession that I love. 
uh, and, and, has, and have really been able to build a business around. Right. So tell me more about that. When did you decide to start your own business doing public relations? So there were, there were a couple things that happened after American Heart Association. Uh, I went to work for the Regional Transportation Authority, the B, uh, and was their manager of communications. Uh, so spent six years in that job and had, um, had a really great mentor and boss in Tom Nascala, who was the CEO at the time. And he really encouraged me to do the professional development. Uh, so through an organization called Texas Public Relations Association and the Public Relations Society of America, I did a lot of professional development and ended up getting my accreditation in, in public relations. I saw all of these professionals around the state that I really admired and thought, okay, what is it that distinguishes them? They're, they're smart people. They're giving me case studies and, and things that they're doing in, in the health field and in not just in transportation, but in all aspects of, of PR. And they all had these curious initials behind their name called APR. So I started trying to figure out what that was, figured out what it was. And because A&I did not have a degree in communications or a degree in public relations, I used the curriculum, I used the study process to go through that accreditation really as my kind of master's class in, in what, how to do and, and what public relations theory and practice uh, and, and communications models and communications theory and all those things. Wow. Uh, was about. So I got my APR while I worked at the, uh, at the, the Transportation Authority. And then uh, in, at the end of that six years, uh, there were some changes in our budgeting. There were some changes in, in leadership and, and the, the, the RTA was going through a reduction in force and I was gonna be one of the folks that was laid off. So I negotiated a deal with, uh, with Mr. Nascala because that was in the middle of a legislative session and I was doing all the external communications, including legislative stuff. Wow. So I worked a deal to work kind of part-time and through the rest of the legislative session, but start my own business. So I, I thought if I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna jump in, but I had a little bit of a cushion that I had a six month contract kind of right out the door and that really gave me the cushion that I needed to, to launch my business. That's fantastic, though, because you were able to to uh, turn a situation that could have been very cut and dry into something that benefited both parties. And yeah. I admire that very much. And so would you say you've always kind of been able to, despite what circumstances may look like, figure out a way for it to be mutually beneficial? I think one of my strengths as a public relations person has always been to pull together things that seem disparate, things that seem really uh, far flung and figure out how to synthesize that information together, synthesize those people together. What are the different perspectives or different frameworks in which folks are looking at a perspective problem and how can I, um, how can I bring those thought processes together and, and maybe in some cases make two plus two equal five? Yes. We know mathemati mathematically it doesn't, but in community building and in, in public relations, sometimes you can make two plus two equal five. And so I think that was part of what happened in 1995 when I started my own business was thinking, how do I take uh, these, these pieces and what could, as you said, potentially be a devastating career move uh, and turned into an opportunity. That's, I love that, the two plus two equals five. I mean, and especially when it relates to this particular subject. I mean, beautifully said. So I did a little bit of research on you, and for anybody who's listening, please make sure to visit electcarol.com because that talks, it gives a brief history about what you've been up to and the accomplishments that you've had since you've been on the DMC board. And so you have a history with Delmar College that it goes back a few generations. I actually do, yes. Tell me yes. about it. So I remember my first memory of Delmar College uh, is as a young child and my mom was going back to school, commuting from Bishop uh, over to Delmar College. And I'll tell the story around that in a second. But yes. I remember her with her book covers, I mean, her books on the dining room table and the Delmar Viking book covers that she had on those books while she was doing homework and the and all of us kids in elementary school and middle school you know were, were hanging around the dining room table we'd all do our homework together with my mom so she had a 
I don't know, like a secretarial degree or something like that right out of high school, but had not gone to, to college or to university. And so she was a, I think we figured out she was probably a 32, 33 year old young mother of four and uh, went back to school to Del Mar to, and, and ended up getting a bachelor's and a master's in education. But three semesters at Del Mar College got her on her way. Wow. Yeah, yeah. that's that's huge. And you attended as well. Uh, I did some continu- continuing education classes. So after Mark and I moved here, I remember taking a photography class. Uh, there were a couple of other things like that, maybe a theater class. So I had done some things like that, uh, just as, as uh, just continuing education. And then both of my kids, uh, Christopher uh, and Alexandra, both, uh, both took dual credit at Ray High School mm-hmm. through Del Mar College, uh, but then also took courses at Del Mar College you know, towards their, their college uh, hours as well. So, yeah, it's... Three generations. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's huge. I mean, because I feel and I, I hear people that support this this ideology that Del Mar College really is a, a really excellent community college. I mean, in the region, in the state, um, it, it's it's known for being for being a, a beneficial institution to have in your community. And after going to your website and seeing the accomplishments that have the the community college has has uh, been able to register since you've been on board have been huge. And we'll we'll get to those in a minute. So you were president temporarily for the League of Women Voters, and I, I think was. that's tremendous. So how did that come to be? So there, you know, I don't remember all the details, but it was back in my RTA days, and there were a couple of women who would regularly come to the RTA board meetings. Uh, at the time, and the league may still do a lot of this, they would have different members go to the city council meetings, county commissioners meeting, RTA board meetings, and monitor those meetings. Uh, and so um, I remember meeting a couple of women, uh, Pauline Clark and Nan Pillinger, uh, were a couple of the, whose names come to mind, and uh, they just befriended me. So they were, at the time, the league really had a lot of, of older women who were involved, and they were looking for young blood. <laughs> so That's a good thing. Recruit, yeah, they recruited me to come to some league meetings, and before I knew it, I was on the board, and I was the program chair, and then I was on the nominating committee, and then I was a vice president of something, and so they 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 got me in. So for four or five years, I was really involved uh, in the League of Women Voters, and um, and was president. And it was they're, they're great women. It's a great organization. They really dig into issues. Yes. Um, and I tell you, in the past maybe 15, 20 years, the league has grown tremendously, and and I think just has a, a fabulous group of women of all ages, and their voters guides, their voters forums. Uh, all of the educational work that they do, both around uh, just just voting in general, but then issue specific as well. I just can't say enough good thing about the league and and the women who are involved there. And and, uh, just they were some great role models and mentors. In fact, uh, I don't know if you saw on Facebook, you may or may not, uh, one of the oldest members of the Corpus Christi League just passed away, Joyce Jarman. She was 104 years old. Wow. And she she voted before she died. She wow. had her mail-in ballot and she voted. It was on Facebook, her daughter, some, or somebody said, and she mailed her, her ballot uh, a couple of days before she passed. But 104 years old. And she, even well into her hundreds, was attending league events on a regular basis and was just a fabulous woman. So, again, it's, it's a great organization and there's some some lifelong uh, women who have really kept that organization going. I keep my membership. I don't attend very often, mm-hmm. uh, but I keep well, you're my busy. Going. Yeah, you're a busy lady. <laughs> okay, so would you say that you've always seen the importance? I mean, especially as a woman, you know, we haven't had the rights to vote as long as other individuals. Have you always felt passionate about voting? You know, exercising your voter rights. I have. I think I have been. I have voted in every election since I was 18, maybe with an exception of a couple of constitutional amendment elections or maybe a bond election here and there. But, uh, and I don't, I, I didn't always vote in party primaries uh, as a young person. Uh, I have as, as an older adult, uh, but, I, but I don't think I have missed a general election since I turned 18. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because this year, a lot of people who've been eligible to vote but haven't been registered are registering. And so 
do you think that it's important for, you know, especially people to, for people to be aware, especially of what's happening in the local arena? Absolutely. I mean, locally, statewide, nationally, there, there, it is, it is the most significant and most overlooked uh, piece of public, uh, public policy work, public dialogue that, that, that you can have. Mm -hmm. So, so I certainly, um, I really believe in, in taking that opportunity being an informed voter and yes. you may not know about every issue and every candidate on the ballot, uh, vote for the ones that you know about, mm -hmm. but it is, it is so important. And, and, and I guess to think of it on the flip side of that coin, do not abdicate that responsibility to others, because when you, when you choose not to participate at that level, then you're giving away your voice to others. Your your voice is negated. You don't have you don't have um, and, and people like you. So so it is so important that all of us participate at that basic level of democracy. Mm -hmm. So I and, which is and I don't remember political discussions as a kid growing up. In fact, I didn't know if my parents were Republican or Democrat mm -hmm. until I was much much older. But but they always voted. They right. always voted. So I just I, I don't. Um, but there, but it, it is the most fundamental and most important thing that we can do. Yes. And I think, uh, people are really starting to realize that now, like, Hey, my opinion matters. Um, not to mention, like you said, the league of women voters, and I'm sure others have tons of resources to help you. So there's really no excuse to be, you know, to not be informed. And so I'm really glad that you emphasize being an informed voter. It's so important. Please, you know, develop your own ideas about individuals and so i and i will i will have to say that 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 stories posted on facebook are not the way to do that go to the candidates facebook pages go to the candidates websites you know listen to videos go you know look look for other places to do that but if somebody is just posting a bunch of stories on facebook you don't have an opportunity to really validate uh, the, the, the truth of that. And, and that, that I think is, is a real problem for our democracy is, um, the lack of discernment in, in, in that case. So that, I think that's a real concern. Oh my goodness. It's true. I mean, uh, my husband worked for KIII for quite a few years and many, uh, around the community get their news from social media as opposed to watching the actual news. And it's interesting because you're right. There really isn't a way. Well, I guess there is a way, but it involves people can't take it at face value. What's being presented on social media. They can, but oftentimes it's, it's incorrect. And so they'll have to do their due diligence to determine what's fact and what's fiction. And, uh, yeah, it can be a little bit alarming <laughs> what gets yeah. spread around so, uh, easily nowadays. So I'm really glad that you said that too, because there are people who care legitimately about the facts and the issues and have uh, resources to inform people in the proper way. And yeah. so do you think that this increase in social media and misinformation, like how would you handle it from a public relations perspective nowadays? So it is it, at a global level uh, and, and, and for, from, from a, a really big picture standpoint, it is a behemoth. And, and so I don't know that um, in my skill set and in my career in public relations that I have that I have the ability to, to influence that anymore. Um, just because it, it, it takes the, just the media monitoring alone uh, it is incredible. Uh, most of my career has been with with large industry, large companies. Uh, I have done some smaller retail, but but really what what I am known for in the PR field is working with big industry on, on uh, their community relations and public outreach efforts. Um, and so the good news in that is that there's teams of people who deal with, with uh, social media and things on, on, on a, a pretty big scale. Um, but how at a local level, how we deal with it uh, is to continue to put out the facts. You can't argue on social media, you can discuss, but we know that, that arguing 
uh, really doesn't change other doesn't change people's minds. Mm-hmm. But you can continually refer people to accurate sources of information, and you can respectfully provide facts to folks and then let them draw their own conclusions. No, I think that's the best way to handle it. Because like you said, no amount of ranting and raving and, you know, belittling is going to accomplish anything. And so, yeah, that's definitely the best approach. So tell me about when you started doing your work and being elected president for the CCISD board. So, gosh, that was uh, in 2006. Mm-hmm. So 2006 to 2014, I served on the CCISD board. And, and I, I got involved at the time. Um, my kids were both at Winsteel Middle School. And there was an issue in that one of the previous bond elections had promised new science labs for, gosh, I don't know, six or eight middle schools. And the Winsteel Science Lab never got built. Um, and I, so I started digging around and asking some questions at CCISD about that project. And uh, at the time, Mark was sitting, sitting on the, the city council. I had been very involved in the Chamber of Commerce and was a past president of the, the Corpus Christi Chamber of Commerce. Um, so, and had been involved in, in a number of organizations and was, was involved in the PTA at Winseal. Uh, so I started digging around asking questions about that science lab and found out that the bond language had actually said science labs at these specific schools uh, so that, so now the the board the board of trustees is legally obligated to fulfill the bond. Well, there had been some financial changes and a couple of other projects in that bond election had gone over budget, whatever it was, and they had decided to not complete the the not do the the science lab. So we met with the the leadership, the administration, not board, but we met with some administrative leaders at CCISD, and I tell people that I swear to God, I mean, he didn't literally do this. But the, the CFO at the time patted me on the head and said, that's okay, miss, you probably don't understand how bond elections work. Oh, no. <laughs> he didn't literally do that, but figuratively he did. And yes. I thought, oh, you have just riled the wrong mama bear. <laughs> so I got really involved and dug in and, and did all my research. And for about three or four board meetings in a row, went to the board and said, you are legally obligated and here's why. And literally over public comment over the course of about three or four board meetings said, we're going to keep on pounding this drum until you build the science lab that you promised the voters. And they eventually did. They found the money elsewhere and they eventually did. But kind of through that process, I thought, I think I really want to get involved at a leadership level here. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to throw my name in the hat. Um, and, and so decided to do that. And, and the individual who ran in district four and the individual who was holding that position, uh, was not running for reelection. So it was an open seat and, and I won. So that was, that was a start in 2004, 2006, six, 2006. Yeah. Cause yeah. you were there until 2014 before you made the switch mm-hmm. to Delmar. That's correct. So and- I had decided after eight years, decided that, that, uh, and, and I, we had done a lot of good work and passed several bond elections. Uh, there was a leadership change at the superintendent level. I, had, I was was president of the board when I uh, and so went off the board at, as president, but we had hired hired Dr. Hernandez as the new superintendent, and thought, okay, it's time for me to you know go do something else for a while. And so I announced that I was not going to run for reelection. And some friends uh, kind of grabbed me by the ear and said, "Would you consider Del Mar?" And so <laughs> I ran for Del Mar and and, and, and got it. I that makes me so happy. I mean, clearly you're meant to be doing this and and people know that you're a straight shooter, that you you stand by what you say and that you get things done, which to me is so crucial, especially in education where I feel, you know, sometimes educators can get the short end of the stick or anyone who's involved in that particular uh, area. And so what do you think is the hardest part in getting community support for those kinds of bonds? Uh, the fact that they, they they require a tax increase in a lot of cases. And so so you really need to do some some serious work around uh, around estimating and, and, and looking at facilities. These are all around facilities. So for uh, both public education and community colleges, that is the way that facilities get built and major renovation takes place. We don't have any other pot of money uh, that we can go to to, to build facilities. 
at universities. Uh, they can can use tuition revenue bonds and, and some of those kinds of things, or they can get appropriations from the state legislature. We don't have the ability uh, to do that. We can do some revenue bonds, but but they're they're very limited in what we can do. So so really, uh, taxpayer supported bonds are the only way to to build facilities. Uh, you know, Delmar College has been in existence since I think 1935. Uh, so you you have to eventually work on replacing buildings and, and doing major renovations to buildings. And so I'm just I'm fortunate that that uh, that that leaders before me, both at CCISD and at Del Mar, have, have done the hard work of, of passing bonds uh, and then have done some of that work myself. But but it's it's um, the hardest part is that it, it takes taxpayer dollars. Right. I mean, yeah, as soon as you mention taxes to the public, it's like an, a, a collective cringe, right? Like, what are they going to tell me I have to pay now? I, I'm a, I work for the city water department, so I'm very familiar with these, you know, increases in rates or whatever it may be in order to, to get certain things done. But the fact is you, you have to do it in order to get certain things done. That's right. And so you, so this is a mouthful and I hope I get it right but because you are a chairwoman of the Community College Association of Texas Trustees Board of Directors, that's one of the only, or the only higher education association consisting of elected officials, right? Correct, so in, in the state of Texas, there are 50 community colleges, and they range from super large colleges in Houston and Dallas, El Paso, uh, San Antonio, all the way down to little teeny tiny, almost high school sized community colleges, in, in small towns and small counties all across the state. Uh, there are about 400, gosh, 413 or 415 or something like that elected officials in those community colleges across those, the, those 50 campuses. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in universities, the, all of those, all of that leadership is appointed by the governor. So you have boards of regents of the A&M system, of the Texas Tech system, et cetera or even in private universities, you have board of regents, but th those are again appointed. Yes. So in, in higher education, community college regents and trustees are the only elected officials in higher education in the state of Texas. Uh, this organization is, uh, the current iteration of it's probably about 12 years old now. Uh, and, and, and there has been a Texas Association of Community Colleges, which is really kind of more the administrative side and then this organization strictly represents and does, we do advocacy work, but we also do engagement and education, professional development for those volunteer uh, regents and trustees around the state. And so this is a recent development, right? This just happened? This just happened. I, I have been chair-elect for two years. They're two-year terms. So mm -hmm. I've been chair-elect for two years and took over as chair of the board in August. Yes. yes. Congratulations. And Thank so you. this is Thank something you. that you hold very close to your heart. And it seems in particular community colleges. I mean, but would you have to be associated with a university in order to be on their board, like a like a bigger school, like an actual university? So so the community college, uh, th this board that I serve on is strictly community college regents and trustees. Yes. And it's it's a volunteer organization. Uh, the I don't know that there is an association. I think there is an association of governing boards of universities and, uh, and university foundations and those kinds of things. I'm, I'm, it exists, I'm not too familiar with it. Uh, and at a national level, uh, there is an association of community college trustees at the national level as well. So we're the, the Texas version and the community college version of that governing board, of that governing board association. And so you're able to serve on the state association as well as in the specific one to Del Mar. Correct. Okay. So that's... you have yeah you have to be a sitting regent or trustee to be a member of the state association. Okay. And yeah, and then the state association selects its board and its in its officers. Okay. Wow, that's fantastic. And so, do you feel like you have a great? So, are you able to influence how other community colleges are advocating in their communities, being on that state in that state association? So we don't do individual community work. What we do is, is at the state association level is our legislative policy and our advocacy policy because about 20% oh, or so of our funding comes from the state of Texas. Uh, we actually have uh, some, some base funding and there's some formula funding. Uh, so there's, there's funding from the state. 
But then there's also a number of state laws that influence how community colleges offer, operate. Everything from, I mean, just everything from procurement codes to, uh, to obviously labor and employment law. Uh, there, there's a myriad of things, transfer policy. There, there's all kinds of things that, that are in state law. And so we advocate both for funding, but then also for, uh, for state law to be uh, something that, that we can work with and, and, and we think is, is positive for community colleges. But then the other two pillars of what our state association does is around professional development. Mm -hmm. So as an elected official, we're still required to have uh, professional development and regular uh, upkeep with that. Uh, everything from financial policy to just good, good governance practices. Uh, we do a lot of issues related education. So at, as issues are coming down the pike, we can help our regents, volunteer regents and trustees understand what the statewide issues might be. Uh, but it's all done at the statewide level. Excellent. Very good. And so I want to get into the specifics about the changes that have happened while you've been the Delmar College regent at large. And I ha there's a list of them. I mean, it's really Im impressive. Uh, there's been a four-year increase in degrees and certifications, an increase in enrollment um, with the highest number last fall, I believe, fall of 2019. Yeah, the highest yes. enrollment uh, number. Um, you also lowered maintenance and operation tax rates. Uh, that's huge. So how did all of this come to be? Do you come in with these ideas and just develop a plan to, to make it happen? Or how does that work? So at the board level, um, the, the board is responsible for the hiring and firing of the CEO, for the adoption of a budget, for uh, major policy, major decisions around you know, facilities and those kinds of things. Uh, we also set policy and we adopt a strategic plan. There's other things that we do, but those are those are the really the big responsibilities. So through the course of setting a budget every year, working with the, the college president and his staff to think about what is the economic environment, uh, what what obviously are the, the ad valorem tax values, and so what rate do we need to have to um, to be able to to accomplish what we need to accomplish. Given COVID environment, our, our tax rate has gone up for, for several years. Mm -hmm. uh, but given the COVID environment, what's happened economically uh, all over the state and, and, and locally as well, uh, looked at the budget to say, what, what can we do to really hold the line on costs? So there's two parts of any budget for a community college or for a school district. There's the operations budget and then there's the debt budget. Uh, so when you pass these bond elections, then that you have to pay for that out of the sale of those bonds. But then every year there is there's a separate budget that, that it's around around that debt. Both of those are supported by local taxes. Mm -hmm. So on our operations side, we said, look, the, the the administration came to us and said we think we can have our 21 budget to be flat basically the exact same as our 20 budget, as our fiscal year 20 budget. And we said, if you can do that, that's a great thing because then that saves our taxpayers money uh, in, in, this, in this upcoming fiscal year. So we were able to actually lower our operations tax rate to the lowest level in four years, uh, raise the same amount of revenue as we had last year. Wow. No increase. Uh, and, and, and part of that's because we've had you know, we don't have the same facilities costs that we have with with no electricity not no electricity but i mean you know you you've got you've got uh, different things happening in security mm -hmm. uh you certainly we've we've limited travel and and the, the both for, for our faculty and staff as regents as well and so there are a number of places uh where we could save some dollars uh in in and in, and in, in, in make that happen so we were able to do the, again the lowest operations tax rate in four years. That's tremendous. Now, yeah. Now the combined with our debt, we actually did increase slightly mm -hmm. uh, because when you uh, add in the voter approved debt, we did actually sell the rest of the bonds to finish our, our South Campus. And so there is a slight overall tax increase. But I think it's important to note that where where the board had control and where the administration had control uh, to be able to, uh, to lower our tax rate, we did. Yeah, that, I mean, the fact that you were able to do that, especially in 2020, when there's just so much uncertainty, speaks volumes about 
your commitment to to the uh, Del Mar College. And absolutely. And so, I mean, I imagine that this pandemic just totally threw you for a loop. I mean, was there a contingency plan in place for this kind of thing? I I think the answer most people have is no. Like, who expected this? But, like, it seems to me like y'all maybe had to act fast. We did not have a contingency plan for a pandemic. I mean, we we have contingency plans for all kinds of crisis uh, events on campus. Mm. You know, active shooters, you know, definitely hurricanes Mm -hmm. and natural disasters, those kinds of things. Um, and, and, and even in the case, uh, gosh, several years ago, I was not on the board then, a tornado did some major damage to you know, part of the West Campus. Mm-hmm. And so we have all those kinds of, of, of business interruption contingencies. But what happened, if you recall, uh, the, the world, the, the, the U.S. started shutting down at spring break time, basically. Yes, exactly. So all, all of our faculty, all of our students, all of our administrators, you know, had a, had a week break in March. And in the middle of all that, our, our president and, and his leadership team were obviously working mm-hmm. and were monitoring the situation. And they made the call to uh, to postpone or to extend spring break a week. And what, and, but, but with the instruction that we were going to spend that week uh, figuring out how to move as many course as many courses online as we could. Mm-hmm. So our faculty, and I just I have to give them great credit. They they just made it just a great effort to move all that coursework online. There are a lot of professors who already maybe were teaching a section. I mean, you know, take a history section. So I've got two online and I'm teaching three in person. So they already had experience and and were able to move some of that. You think about a chemistry professor, you know, how do you teach chemistry online? How do you do a chemistry lab online? You can't. How do you teach welding online? How do you teach nursing online? I mean, there were so many of of our courses uh, that don't lend themselves to, to, uh, hybrid or, or an online presence. So so there was a, a great deal of work that had to be done to move all those sections online. And then the, the board gave the president and, and the faculty the leeway to extend our spring semester as well. Because even with that extra week at spring break, stuff didn't happen immediately. And it took several weeks to, to get all of this rolled out. So we had we had several ending dates to the spring semester. We had a, and, and their priority were the students who were supposed to be graduating in the spring. Yes. So they, they threw a lot of effort and a lot of support at those students, making sure that they could do everything that they could to help those students graduate. Uh, and then we, and then the second priority was to help all students finish the spring semester. Uh, which meant again extending that um, that finish time for a number of those courses, uh, and then we let a number of students take incompletes in courses so that they could come back in the summer and complete that work if they had to. Uh, so we had been very very flexible with our students throughout the course of this pandemic to try to help them finish up that work. Now that we've started into another full semester, uh, we've actually seen a decrease in our August enrollment. Mm -hmm. So our traditional 16 week uh, semesters started in August and we saw a pretty significant dip in that enrollment. Uh, But we have instituted these flex programs that allow students to come in and take the same course in eight weeks or in 14 weeks. So as opposed to 16 weeks, you might have a 14 week start date, you might have an eight week start date. Wow. And we went from 300 students in that scenario last fall to over 3,000 students, and registration has not ended for those flex courses yet. So we have a tremendous number of students who either couldn't start in August because their own kids weren't back in school exactly. yet. I mean, think about that. Exactly. <laughs> think about being a single mom and your own, you've got to get your own kids through their schoolwork. You maybe finished up in the spring and that was all you could do and you thought i can't start i can't do this until my kids get back to school or i can't afford to do this now because mm-hmm. i don't have the money to pay for tuition mm-hmm. so we're, we're working with uh students that we expected back and we haven't seen yet and one to maybe get them enrolled in these eight week courses or two to find out what the other obstacles might be and get them back enrolled uh, in january so we're doing a tremendous amount of work with our students to try to, to, to keep them 
uh, connected to us and to try to get them back in the classroom. That makes me so happy because at the end of the day, that's what you're wanting to see is your students enroll, stick with it and be successful in their certifications or, or uh, in getting their degrees. And so do you think that, I mean, obviously coronavirus isn't going anywhere, but I imagine at some point, you know, cases will dwindle and, and it won't be so prevalent. And do you think that you at Del Mar College will want to keep these flexible schedules available the, forever? Yes. So this was, it was actually a strategy uh, that we had started working on because of the number of part-time students that we have. 78% of our students go to school part-time, which means they're taking less than 12 hours in a, in a typical semester. And, and there are a variety of reasons for that. Most of our students are, are parenting and or working part-time or full-time while they're going to school. So maybe you know two or three classes is all they can take. They can't take four or five. Um, so so but, but by doing these eight-week classes, can you do two courses in the first eight weeks, two courses the second eight weeks, then all of a sudden you've taken 12 hours, mm -hmm. you've taken four full courses, in that semester and you're built up to a full-time student. So we were already working on these eight-week strategies as a way to move students from part-time to full-time. Uh, and it just, as a result, we had some of that system in place and it's proven very effective for our students impacted by COVID-19 as well. Um, so that's, it's, uh, we think we're gonna see a lot of continued flexibility around the, that kind of coursework uh, the other piece about who our students are, most of our students are freshmen, 70-something, 70 73 or 74% of our students are freshmen, meaning they have less than 30 hours. So we have to work on getting those students all the way through into their sophomore year and finish their associate's degree. Um, so understanding who they are, understanding what their, their needs and their obstacles might be, um, and, and creating uh, some flexible, innovative ways to, to, to help them. And then the last piece about who our, our, our students are, we have the luxury, we have the right, we have the privilege of accepting 100% of the students who apply to Del Mar College. Colleges and universities in some parts of the state maybe only accept the top 10% or the top 25%, or depending on your SAT yep. and your ranking class and your GPA, we'll decide whether or not we want to accept you. When you apply to Del Mar College, we accept you regardless of your academic history. So some of our students need developmental ed. Some of our students need face-to-face -face instruction. Yes. Some of our students need the, the Stone Writing Center, need our, our tutoring, uh, both, both online and, and in-person tutoring help. So, so we have a variety of needs of our students that may not lend that, their learning styles may not be, um, um, lend themselves to, to remote or online teaching. So we recognize that and we know that we're gonna have to have a lot of work done uh, with our students to, to bring them back up to par. Um, and, and, and so when I talk about flexibility, think about all the variety of students I've just described to you and, and how community colleges are the place where folks come and get that flexibility, get that innovative instruction. No, that's such an important point that really hits home. And I, you know, can relate to it personally with the, you, you accepting all students who apply regardless of educational uh, background in terms of GPA or whatever it may be. I mean, my little brother, you know, went to Del Mar, would drop a class, went to Del Mar, would fail a class, like couldn't commit. And, and he finally did about a year ago. And now he's excelling because he knows what he wants to do. But it's tremendous that you don't have to necessarily worry about, I mean, I, this is my, the last straw. They're not going to take me again kind of thing. That, that's huge because sometimes it takes people a little bit longer to realize and, and truly commit to the education. And so that to me is just a saving grace for anyone who needs the four or five tries kind of thing. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, so we've been doing a lot of that work and you, you talked about the, the record enrollment or all near record enrollment we had last fall. Mm -hmm. And, and that was just, we, we've been working real hard on, on all of that 
the recruitment through persistence rates, helping people move again from part-time to full-time students. So, so that's been a lot of the work that we've done. The other piece that you mentioned that I, I just have, we have to brag on, just the raw number of students who are, are graduating. So we have had a steady increase of the actual students walking across the stage, accepting their degrees and certificates. And that's been growing for the last four years. We had a record high, uh, over 2,000 degrees and certificates awarded in, in uh, calendar year, academic year, uh, 1920, excuse me, 1819, 1819. Um, and, and that work has been very, very deliberate strategic work. Uh, we had this nudge campaign so, so students who were within 12 hours of finishing their degree and for whatever reason hadn't finished, we started bugging them. We started nudging them. That's <laughs> and, genius. Exactly. And encouraging them to come back and finish because this is about completion. A number of our students, you know, they, they, they start a certificate program and they get, you know, maybe, a, maybe it's a, a 40 week program and they get, you know, halfway through and industry comes and hires them because they're, They've learned enough to get hired. Right. And so, again, in all kinds of ways, we were, were, were nudging, nudging our students to come back and finish that degree because that would only help them in the long run. If they want to move up in their, that, that industry, if they move, move up in that company, then having that associate's degree, having completed that certificate is going to be important for their future. Uh, so we've been working uh, very specifically about getting, getting those folks to completion. Did you call it a nudge campaign? We did. I we love that. that. That was the internal. That was the internal uh, description of it. Because again, we had we had all of this data through a, a program called Civitas, uh, where we knew exactly where students were and what it was going to take for them to finish their degree. And our faculty advisors and our um, our student success center, uh, all the folks in our student services, uh, were, were taking these students and sending them a variety of messages electronically. Uh, as well as just good old-fashioned phone calls and reaching out to students and trying to get them to complete. Well, I guarantee you, because I know people even now um, who are just are a few hours shy of whatever it may be, their bachelors, their associates, and they talk about it all the time. They're hyper aware of it. And so the fact that they're hyper aware of it and then you guys are like, hey, <laughs> I think that's so Come brilliant. On. It's brilliant. Come back. Yeah. Come back. <laughs> and, it, and it goes to show that it, that it's effective because of the, the, the increase. So well done on that. And so what has been the most rewarding part of being involved at this level uh, at Del Mar College? I tell you that there is um, there is nothing like graduation, and I will be so thrilled when we can go back to in-person graduations. To have um, the variety of people who walk across that stage and pick up their diploma is mind-boggling at times. I mean, it's everything from the 20-year-old cosmetology student to um, a, a 40 year old welder to a 36 year old uh, used to be an LVN and came back and got her, her registered nursing degree. Uh, it is students who are finishing a degree in biology who have scholarships to go to uh, their, their four year university of choice. It is just, it's students all over the gamut. Uh, and there are, there are parents who graduate with their children. Wow. We, we've had a number, every, every graduation, we will have a family or two that has a parent child walking across the Del Mar stage at the same time uh, opportunity. And it just, it is such a thrill to be able to shake the hands and look in the, the smiling faces of our graduates. And, and that's, if I have to say that anything that gives me the motivation to continue, it is it is graduation. That I I couldn't agree more. As soon as you said it, I'm like, I bet that's just the b biggest feeling of accomplishment, seeing that their work paid off. That you know all the resources that have been put into helping them succeed. I mean that that's huge, and you're such an instrumental part of that. And so for anyone, well, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, well, but but our job as regents is to really understand that 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 it is, it's our job to clear that pathway so that teaching and learning can take place. It, it's, it's not my job to, to tell a professor uh, or an instructor how to teach their class 
um, but but I need to make sure that they have the building and the resources and the equipment and the support that they need to do that. I can't tell a student uh, how to live their life or to, how to make the choices around their higher education, but I need to make sure that there are advisors and financial aid and that there's a safe and secure campus and that they have the equipment and the facilities and the classrooms and the laboratories and are teaching the, the state-of-the-art curriculum that they need to be successful. And so, so, and it's about making sure that those things happen, not at a micro level, but at a macro level. And that's why budgets and policies and facilities and all those things that sound like they're not important are absolutely critical to the success of our students and, and the, the, the successful way that our faculty and instructors are able to teach those students. So while you know, folks criticize boards for, yes. for paying attention to buildings and to paying attention to, to numbers and budgets, but that's the way in which a community's priorities are, um, are manifested at a community college level. Because uh, I can never ever do what those instructors do. But my role in, in a community college is to make sure that they have the resources uh, necessary to, to do that great teaching. And I'm glad you touched on that because you're right. I mean, the, the what would you say? The perception of a board is absolutely like these governing entities that are above it all. And like you said, tend to be number focused, but there's a reason why. And like you said, I, I need to provide all the resources and, and everything that the, my faculty needs to make these students successful. I mean, it's critical. And I mean, there's a reason you've been in this position for six years. And <laughs> I mean, we need to see you implement this plan, this strategic plan that, that you were talking about on your page. So for anybody listening, and if you haven't voted yet, go to electcarol.com, listen to this, what you're listening to this interview, check out this website, see what she's all about. She's been on uh, the Del Mar College region at large for six years. She knows what she's doing and give her a vote. She's incredible. I want to thank you so much, Carol, for being here with me tonight, for all the work that you do for our community and for just being a, an amazing example of a leading lady. I appreciate you so much. Brittany, thank you. This was a great opportunity, and I've enjoyed your podcast. I have to admit, I've not listened to all 155 of them before me, but I've listened to quite a few, and I've really enjoyed it, and I really appreciate the opportunity to visit with you today. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Carol.